Good morning. How was that silence for you? Was it uncomfortable? Maybe you're just confused why I wasn't talking. Or maybe you strangely enjoyed the quiet for just a brief moment. Have you ever experienced a silent period in your life? Quite practically, maybe just an awkward silence with a boss or on a first date. Or, you know when you're praying with a big group of people and you're really ready for the person who's supposed to close it to close it, but they're just like waiting for the spirit to move one more time. It's been like eight minutes. And you're like, it's just awkward. Maybe it's that. Or has there been a bit time in your life where you felt just silence from other people or even God himself? Or silence come in the form of chaos or difficult circumstances or even wilderness? Because the place that we've come to in our chapel series, Deeper Still, is, is a place of, of silence. Because last week we heard how God's spirit led Israel into the wilderness for 40 years to, to work them out, to transform them. And we saw how throughout the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit fell on certain individuals at certain times. And many of these individuals were prophets. And these prophets had a deep hope and a deep longing for the Messiah that was to come. They had a hope that God's Holy Spirit, that his presence would, would come and begin and be available for all people at all times. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 42, he says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. This was the deep hope and longing as the Old Testament's pages conclude. It was a hope for the Messiah, a hope for God's spirit. But when would the chosen one come? How would people know it was him? And as we read our Bibles, it, it appears as if the New Testament follows shortly after the Old. But there is actually 400 years between the two. And, and this period is called the intertestamental period. And there, there's been a lot written about it, but one of the key characteristics of this time was the lack of God's presence. Many maintain that God's Holy Spirit, his presence, was not with Israel during this time. God's people experienced a 400-year silence from God, hoping and longing for the promises the prophets of old proclaimed. And they waited. And it was silence. And then the New Testament begins. And we receive these words in Matthew chapter 1. On the first page of the New Testament it says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
Just as Adam, or just as God had breathed his spirit into the first Adam, now God and his spirit is active in giving life to the second, to Jesus. But it's more than that. Matthew, the writer of the the first book in the New Testament in our Bibles, he knew the prophecies. He knew what Isaiah had said. And so he is explicitly making a connection that Jesus, this is the one. This is the Messiah. This is who we've been waiting for. And so from the outset of the New Testament, it is made clear that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one, and that God's Holy Spirit was on him. And as the New Testament and gospel writers continue, it kind of moves fairly quickly to the next major event of Jesus' life, which was his baptism. And that's where I want to read for us this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 3, and I'm just going to read for us two verses, verses 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from, came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You might be pretty familiar with this story, but I I want us just to imagine for a moment as if we were there. I want you to imagine that you are a Jewish person, and you've traveled to the Jordan to be baptized by John the Baptist, just to get that in your mind. Because you've heard the rumors. Maybe John is the Messiah. Maybe he's the one that we were talking about. So you want to go check it out for yourself. You hope that it's true because your whole life, your parents and your grandparents have been reading and telling you the stories of the prophecies of the Messiah and God's presence that was to come. But you're starting to doubt that a little bit because it's been 400 years of silence. You're not even sure if they're true. Maybe there's been an echo of God's voice at times, but not the real thing. You want the real thing. An echo is no substitute. You want God. You want his spirit. You want to hear him. And so, you get baptized. You go into the water. You come out of the water. And then you're sitting on the sidelines and you're watching people get baptized. And it's kind of just the same thing over and over again. In and out. In and out. But then, a man goes into the water. And as he rises, the heavens open. And a dove in the form, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends on him. And you think, is this the one? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one that the prophets talked about? Could it be? And as you're thinking this, you hear these words. This is my beloved son. With whom I am well pleased. You hear God speak. 400 years of silence has broken. And now you know that this is the Messiah. The one on whom the spirit rests. God's son. And there is a renewed hope in you. 
for a renewed world. Something new is awoken in you and all of God's people. This was a significant moment in redemptive history for God's people. But what about Jesus? How, how did Jesus experience his baptism? Because at, at this point, Jesus is approximately 30 years old. Right? So we kind of get his birth. In one of the Gospels, we get this temple story where he was teaching people at a young age. And then all of a sudden, we jump and Jesus is 30. So at this point, Jesus hasn't started his mission. He hasn't begun the work that he was called to do. He was just getting baptized. Keith Warrington, in the book, A Biblical Theology of the Holy Spirit, writes this. The Father affirms Jesus relationally, but does not empower him actively. He chooses not even to comment on his mission, but concentrates on confirming his sonship and his pleasure with him. Before Jesus preached, before Jesus did any miracles, before Jesus achieved anything, God confirmed his identity as son. So how did Jesus experience his baptism? Well, first he saw heaven open. And he saw the intrusion of heaven into earth by the Holy Spirit. By the way, that's what the Holy Spirit does now and among us right now. It is, it is, the Holy Spirit brings heaven to earth here and now. And then second, Jesus heard these words from his father. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And just like us, if we were to hear words like that from a mentor or a parent or someone close to us, Jesus felt deeply seen, deeply known, and deeply loved. Because his identity as son preceded his performance as savior. Jesus' identity as son preceded his performance as savior. And yours does too. Your identity as child precedes your performance as Christian. Your identity as son, your identity as daughter of the living God precedes your performance as Christian. Your identity comes before anything else. And Jesus' baptism models this. That the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life and in your life and in my life confirms this reality but we often get this flipped all too often we believe the lie that our performance gives us our identity anyone yes we believe the lie our performance gives us our identity and we find our identity in our in our worth and what we do what we have and what others think of us and Let's just for a moment, let's put like a Christian Holy Spirit spin on this. Right? Think about when you heard that we were doing a chapel series on the Holy Spirit. What, where, where did your mind go? My guess, maybe this isn't true of you, but my guess is it goes to the book of Acts. It goes to the miracles. It goes to the healings, the prison breaks, the visions. Or maybe you think of Jesus feeding the 5,000 or turning water into wine, or casting out demons. 
our minds go to performance first, to mission, to ministry, to the things we do for Jesus. But God starts in a different place. The Holy Spirit starts his work in a different place. He starts with relationship. He starts with identity. God starts with taking pleasure in his kids before they ever do anything. And what God is saying to you is the same thing he said to Jesus at his baptism. You are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. And with you, I am well pleased. I am pleased before you ever obey me. I am pleased with you before grades come out at the end of the semester. I am pleased with you before you confess your sin or even stop your sin. I am pleased with you before you play your instrument, sing your song, score a point, lead a team, or do anything. I am pleased with you because you are my child. And my Holy Spirit that I give to you confirms that. It seals it. Dort, this is the model. The work of the Holy Spirit in your life starts with God. It doesn't start with you or what you do. Because you cannot conjure up the Holy Spirit through stringing a few days of purity or any other kind of morality together. You cannot conjure up the Holy Spirit by paying more boldly than someone else. You cannot conjure up the Holy Spirit by reading or singing or fasting. Because you cannot conjure up the Holy Spirit. God sends his Holy Spirit. And it's always sent in the context of relationship. This was true for Jesus. And it's true for you and for me. The work of the Holy Spirit in your life precedes anything you ever do for Jesus. Your identity precedes your performance. That's the starting line. That's the beginning. That's where the work starts. But it's not where it ends. It's not the finish line. Because if we keep going in the life of Jesus, for Jesus there was more than just knowing he was God's son, although that is vitally important. There was living as God's son. There was mission and ministry. But before all that, there was something else. Aaron hinted at it last week, but, but let's read it directly after Jesus' baptism. Listen to what happens. This is Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. 
heaven had just broken into earth and God spoke. Jesus' identity as son was confirmed. And I bet Jesus was feeling pretty good. If that happened to you, you'd, you'd be ready to go. Like, let's go preach. Let's go heal. Let's, like, let's go. Like, you're just ready. But first, wilderness. And, and let's realize something for just a moment. Scripture tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit. This signifies his willingness to obey God the Father by the Spirit to go into the wilderness. Because look, Jesus didn't have to. He was God. Although he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus submitted himself to the Spirit's direction. Will you? Will you be led by the Spirit, even if it means wilderness? difficulty or chaos will you go deeper still in his book more simon ponzanbi writes this i suggest that many christians having received the spirit at conversion the spirit of adoption and sonship have never allowed themselves to be led by that same spirit into the wilderness but those who would know the Spirit's power and not just his presence must be tempted, tried, tested, and tempered. And listen to this, so that they might learn to live dependent on God and not on themselves. The question isn't if the wilderness will come. The question is when and are you willing to enter it? Because all too often, I think we avoid it. We avoid it by taking such control of our life and planning out every moment and everything so we don't leave anything to chance. We avoid it by staying so busy and packing our calendars so full that we don't have to be left alone with our thoughts, insecurities, or fears. We avoid it by staying in the comfortability of our own sin rather than the risk of bringing it into the light. Often we're too confident in just knowing we are God's child rather than living as God's child. But Dort, the wilderness... That's the place where we learn to live as God's child. It's the place where we learn to be his son and to be his daughter. Because it's in the wilderness. It's in the difficult circumstances. It's in the chaos. It's in the hardships that each of you have faced, are facing, or will face in the future. Where we come to the end of ourselves and recognize our desperate need for God and his spirit. The wilderness is the place where we become weak and lonely and burned out and aware of the depth of our sin. And we just realize that we can't do it on our own. We can't go any further. There's no way. And if I keep trying, I'm going to be crushed. It's in the wilderness where we realize we need something other than ourselves. It's the, in the wilderness where we become dependent. 
It's in the wilderness that we become sons, that we become daughters. And if you've been around kids at all, babysitting, younger siblings, whatever it is, let me just tell you, kids are dependent on their parents. And that's the place, dependence, that God, by his spirit, wants to bring you in the wilderness. A place of dependence. Will you let him? And, and here's the thing. The devil's smart. He, he knows that. I, I want to go back into the wilderness for just a second where Jesus was tempted. And I want you to listen to what the devil says to him. The devil said, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And again, in another temptation, the devil said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. What's the devil attacking? Jesus' identity as son. He is tempting Jesus to think that his sonship is confirmed only by what he does or how he performs. But in Jesus' baptism, his identity is confirmed. It is sure, and yours is too. Because again, the devil's crafty. We've seen it since the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Because what he wants you to think in the wilderness, when you're in those seasons, when you're in those difficult circumstances, what the devil wants you to think is that the issue in the wilderness is about the sin that you are committing. Right? That it's about whatever explicit content you're engaging in and consuming. That in the wilderness, the thing that really matters is the substance that you're abusing, or the slander that you're slinging, or the lie that you're telling. But in the wilderness, the devil is not simply wanting us to commit a certain sin. He wants us to forget who we are. He wants to derail us from believing that our identity precedes our performance. He wants to knock you so off track that you would never believe you're a child of God. That you would never believe that you're good enough. That you would never believe that you are loved. He wants you to believe that it's all about what you do, what you can carry on your shoulders. And that's what will crush us in the wilderness. Because there's grace for the sin. Over and over again, there's grace, there's love, there's forgiveness, there's acceptance. But what the enemy wants to do is knock you off track and never make you believe that you are good enough to be loved, forgiven, and set free. So why is the wilderness so important? Why is the wilderness the furnace of transformation, as Henry Nouwen writes? Why does the Spirit of God lead his people to the wilderness over and over again? Because it's the place of dependence. It's the place where we no longer just know we are a child of God, that we begin, but we begin to live as a child of God. Dependent on our parent. And it's in the wilderness that we become transformed and empowered to live as sons and daughters of the living God. It's what happened to Jesus. Let's return one last time to Luke chapter 4. 
Let's, let's go to the beginning when Jesus entered the wilderness. Here's what scripture says. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. But then look what happens when he leaves the wilderness. Look in Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And when Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Jesus entered the wilderness full of the Spirit. But Jesus left the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. And that's what the Spirit of God does in the wilderness, transforms and empowers you to live as a child of God. And listen, you're probably sitting here, well, what is the difference of being full of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit? Teaser, we'll unpack that here in a couple of weeks. Come back. But for now, hear this. Your identity precedes your performance. Your identity as child precedes your performance as Christian. The Holy Spirit starts his work there. And then second, the Holy Spirit is leading you to the wilderness. Maybe not now, but sometime. Will you go? Will you enter in? Will you allow God's Spirit to bring you to a place of dependence because your dependence as son your dependence as daughter is the seedbed for the work of the spirit to transform you and it's the seedbed for the power of the spirit to flow out of you so wherever you find yourself this morning i hope that this week you're reminded of your identity as a son and daughter of the living God, and that you were encouraged to live into your identity as a son and daughter of the living God. So to do that, we, I sent an email out this morning. There were some questions, but also attached was a document that's titled, I'm a child of the king. Here's my really practical encouragement. Read it. Sit with it. Pray it. Believe it. Live it.